You're listening to Opera for Everyone. Spectateur, vous allez entendre une version latine d'Édipe Roy. Afin de vous épargner tout effort d'oreille et de mémoire, et comme l'opéra oratorio ne conserve des scènes qu'un certain aspect monumental, je vous rappellerai au fur et à mesure le drame de Sophocle. <laughs> well, welcome to Opera for Everyone properly. Now that we've not heard music, but we've heard a little bit of French speaking. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today once again by guest co-host Kathleen Vanderwill. Welcome, Kathleen. So nice to be with you, Pat. Well, this beginning French speech that we heard tells you this is not a traditional opera. Did you did you catch what he was calling this work of art? It, in fact, operas never say we're about to play an opera for you, but this one tells you what they're going to show. Yes, exactly. It says it's an opera oratorio, which is a bit of a combination. You don't, I don't think I've ever heard of another opera oratorio. You're either an opera or an oratorio, but this is a little bit of both. Well, welcome to Stravinsky. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first look at Igor Stravinsky and his work on Opera for Everyone. And we're going to take on two of his works on this show because they are each more or less an hour in length. They are both based on Greek myths. First, we're going to tackle Oedipus Rex, and then we're going to take a look at Persephone. One premiered in the late 1920s, one premiered in the mid-1930s. And he's an interesting composer. He is. I would say it's probably one of the the more modern works that I've done with you. And, and it's it's interesting. We've, we've finally gotten into the 20th century. <laughs> we have finally gotten into the 20th century. And most of his compositions, the ones with words anyway, he's a very prolific composer of symphonic music. A lot of his music that we consider to be symphonic music was originally composed for dance. But the ones that do have words associated will be in French. But interestingly, the bit that we just played, that clip, is typically meant to be in the vernacular. In other words, the word of the the people who are listening, of the of the area where it's being played. But I happen to have a CD that was made in Montreal, <laughs> so it's in French. So sorry, we'll we'll be your guides as always to what you're <laughs> listening to. But um, Stravinsky coming to the point where he wants to tackle these Greek myths. There's an interesting background there. I'm not sure I fully can explore or explain it. I think probably you require a number of biographers to do that, but we'll tackle it a little bit. And then we're just going to enjoy the way that it's presented musically because we have some soloists and we also have a fabulous male chorus in this opera oratorio. Yes, it's part of his neoclassical period in short, and he is really interested in some of these ancient Greek myths and stories. The source material that Stravinsky is having adapted is Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. And then for Persephone, the myth of Persephone has many different sources, but this goes back to the Homeric myth of Demeter and the Eleusinian mysteries, which we'll talk about. Oh, we're going to need your help much with more that later. <laughs> and I have to tell you, for the, the locals near KHOL, Persephone means good bread and pastries, but, but that's only because of the growing season. There's, it was very apt. Yeah. Well, I, I think they named it knowingly. <laughs> yes. Well, well, we'll, we'll talk perhaps a little bit more about the, the desolation rather than the, the, the good parts of the agrarian economy when we talk about Persephone. But, but the first work that we're going to consider is Oedipus Rex. 
And this is in Latin, interestingly enough. I know we, we just heard some French, but we're going to hear a Latin version. It's all right. We, well, let's just deal with this head on <laughs> because Sophocles did not speak Latin. No, no, not, not, not a wit. Um, <laughs> he, he, was, he was a Greek fellow, yes. an ancient Greek fellow. Yes, indeed. And, and apparently Stravinsky considered setting this in ancient Greek to be consistent with the source material. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he ended up choosing Latin, which he called a medium not dead but turned to stone, which I kind of love. I have, I have a little more on that. Oh, yeah. He said it had the great advantage of giving him a medium, not dead, but turned to stone and so monumentalized. We heard that mm-hmm. that word being used in the beginning there in French and being so monumentalized as to have become immune from any risk of vulgarization. Mm. So intriguing. It is intriguing. He's really saying that the fact that it is a quote unquote dead language actually gives him a lot of freedom because there's no... There's no slang. There's no mistakes. There's right. no, we don't even really know how Latin was pronounced, to be honest. We have some ideas, but we're not 100% sure. Right. So, he... so Oedipus, Oedipus, we've settled <laughs> on Oedipus. We talked about this ahead of time. <laughs> yes. Um, so there's, there's actually a lot of freedom in that. But the other aspect to Latin that will probably be familiar to anybody who was raised Catholic yes. or went to a Catholic school like I did is that it is very much the language of the church, of traditional yes. religion. So that's where you get the oratorio aspect of this coming in. It is a very religiously inflected work. Well, yeah, you get it there. But I think in other elements as well, because it's it's part of that civic duty, almost like a civic religion and responsibility that he was possibly struggling with or possibly embracing when Sophocles was writing his plays, these plays were not just, oh, let's go see a show. I want to go see a movie, that kind of feeling. These were part of religious festivals. These were civic obligations. These were meant to honor the gods. So there's also a sense of reverence and duty. And certainly the gods, while not characters in this show, the gods and their actions are weighty and meaningful in this entire play. And that's what connects, I would say, connects Oedipus Rex to Persephone, the second half of our program here. It's very clear, and we will discuss this much much as we go along, it's very clear to me that Stravinsky is not interested in these so much as well-worn stories. We think of especially of Oedipus, it's most people, especially because of Freud's obsession with the stories. Yes, Freud it will just <laughs> remind people that Freud was not all that old a character at this point and this concept of the Oedipus complex that you wanted to kill your father and marry your mother, but you really do need to know the original story to understand that there's there's more going on than that mm-hmm. simplistic boiled down statement. Right. He Stravinsky says this a couple times that What's interesting about the Oedipus story or what's challenging about the Oedipus story is it's so well known, it's almost ingrained in our references. Even right. if you've never read it, you you know something about it. It's sort of like Hamlet in that way. It's right. you know, it's <laughs> there's a couple foundational stories in English language culture, not just English language culture. Obviously, this is originally in, you know, performed <laughs> in Paris. Um, that are so well worn, so almost shop worn <laughs> that 
you have to find a way to do something new with them, which he very much does. But also, mm. you don't need to tell the story per se, because people know the story. What he's really interested is the more original religious aspects to both of these stories. And I see this specifically with Persephone. He really goes back to the Persephone myth as a set of religious rites performed at a religious festival in honor of gods. It isn't meant to be, or at least wasn't originally meant to be, a fun, entertaining story. Like like you were saying, Pat, it's, you know, <laughs> as entertaining as a Persephone story might be. I think a lot of us probably saw the Disney Hercules. There, mm. <laughs> you know, we that's kind of how we think of the Greek stories these days, or we think of, you know, Edith Hamilton's mythologies. They're very entertaining, they're very good, but they were originally religious rites. And he goes back and really pulls that aspect out and brings it to the to the forefront. And that I think is really what connects both of these these works. And one of the, the comments that's often made about Stravinsky is that Stravinsky for the, the great majority of his life is separated from his homeland. He is a Russian man, but he leaves in his 20s, possibly for a short time, he believes. But once the Russian Revolution takes hold, he realizes he cannot go back and he does not go back. And he's in Paris for a large part of his creative life. And he eventually goes and spends another portion of his creative life in the United States. And he's in Switzerland also, but during this time when he's creating these works, he is in Paris, and that's where these two works will premiere. And this one in particular with his great friend and partner, founder of the Ballet Russe, the Russian ballet company, but the name is in French, never existed in Russia. But Diaghilev had this amazing company where the Russians were seen as exotic I mean, what an amazing thing to have a 20-something-year-old Stravinsky to be your composer for these dancers. It, it was just, what a coup. <laughs> Talk about spotting talent. Because at that point, Stravinsky needed a job. He needed to make money. I mean, it was just a win-win all the way around. This is later on when, when Oedipus Rex comes to the stage. But I mean, that's when we have those great ballet scores for things like Firebird, The Rite of Spring. Petrushka, great works of his that are much beloved to this day. Well, shall we get back to a little bit of narration just to lead us in to our first bit of music where the chorus is going to get our attention? Yes, you'll have noticed that the narration does not have any music underneath it, and it's a very stark contrast. We were fortunate enough to recently see a wonderful production of yes. this. Together. Together, <laughs> which is unusual for us, but very exciting. and. The moment when the narrator falls silent mm. and the chorus comes in is, well, we'll just let you listen to it. Après le sphinx, la peste. Le cœur supplie Édipe de sauver sa ville. Édipe a vaincu le sphinx. Il promet.
Chorus is suffering. Yes, there is a plague in Thebes, which is obviously very topical. Yeah. <laughs> this is I'm one kidding. of those those pieces that often gets referred to in, in our current plague times because there is a plague and the chorus is spending most of what you just heard lamenting their state but also calling upon their king to relieve them to save their lives they're they're dying and they they call upon oedipus they say you solved the riddle of the sphinx right which we should mention yes if you haven't read sophocles recently (laughs) which i hadn't and i needed to be reminded that he becomes king of thebes because he came into the city and problems in the city and he solved this riddle of the sphinx yeah, so this, the Sphinx was a, a man-eating creature and was killing people and basically said, I won't stop killing people in the city until somebody solves my riddle. Do you know the riddle? Um, I do, actually. I will tell you the riddle. I won't tell about this. I won't tell you the answer until the end. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll say it and you can have... Wait, no spoilers in opera. Okay, all right. <laughs> and then when we do, that'll be it. When we do our opera helmet quiz in the middle, I'll tell you the answer. Well, that's fair. <laughs> all I right. guess. No Googling. What being has four legs, then two, and then three? Or the longer version of it, yes. just for some context. What has four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening? All right, so think about that. I am not going to hum the Jeopardy tune. Okay. <laughs> and and we just played a small clip of the chorus there, but they do go on and on. And they're honestly are not that many words there, but they are repeating their pleas to Oedipus to save them, that he is the man to do it, and that they are dying. The plague is destroying them. And Oedipus strides in in a very kingly manner. Now, I just said Oedipus strides in in a kingly manner because you and I had the good fortune to see this together, and and he did that in this. But in the original conception by Stravinsky, there was no striding. All of the main characters were meant to stand still on boxes or plinths and have masks like in a Greek drama and not even gesticulate all that much. So they were very much distanced from the audience. And and that was why the role of the narrator was so important in the vernacular so that people could have some sense of what was going on because they weren't necessarily going to get a lot of clues from, from the singers, from the actors. Yeah, and this is Stravinsky's way of referencing, as you said, the the original Greek way of doing drama. We've mentioned this a little bit at the beginning, but drama is very much part of religious and civic duties in ancient Greek life. And the reason why they were masked is that they weren't meant to represent individuals as much as larger ideas. So Oedipus was not just Oedipus who hates spinach and has two kids and loves to golf. He was Oedipus the king. (laughs) He was the king. And so he'd wear a mask that denoted king. And he would give his his speeches as this element of the king. And Jocasta, who we'll meet later, is the queen. And this changes in Greek drama. I don't want to say this is always the way Greek drama is, but very classical Greek drama is, is like this. You then get later poets and dramatists such as Euripides that change this and make their characters much more full of interiority and specificity. But at this point, yeah, Oedipus is Oedipus the king. That's the name of it. It's what he is. We don't know that much about him and his personal life because he's meant to represent an ideal, an idea. Yes. 
Yeah, maybe not an ideal at this point. <laughs> but this first meeting of him, he idealizes himself. Yes, people, I will save you. I am the man who answered the riddle of the Sphinx, and I will save you once again. I will figure out this problem also because I am the most brilliant Oedipus. Yes, uh, I think we, we call this hubris. <laughs> to use I believe we do. Term, um, <laughs> some may be familiar with. Yeah, so I do think at least once again, we'll reference this beautiful production we saw. But in that production, it's very clear he does feel deeply for his people. He feels the failure of his own rule in their sickness. He does feel responsible for their sickness and he does genuinely want to save them, but he does it in this sort of blustering, hubristic way where he says, well, obviously I'm going to be able to solve this too because look at me, I came in and they made me king. I was so smart, they made me king. So there's nothing I can't do, which is, well, now to to use a, a Biblical reference, pride goeth before a fall. Yes, yes. And we should say, if we're going to keep mentioning the fact that we recently saw a production together, we saw it together spring of 2022 in San Francisco. It was at the San Francisco Symphony. So we're not talking about the opera house here. This is a concert opera oratorio. And it was with the director, Peter Sellers, who has a very special take on this production and he weaves it together with Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms mm -hmm. which comes afterwards uh, it's a fascinating production if you if you have a chance in whatever medium or venue to see it I think we can both recommend that very strongly absolutely and we've referenced the narrator a couple of times one of the most significant changes that Sellers makes is that he specifically has Antigone who is Oedipus's younger daughter she is the role of the narrator. And that, I think, is a really brilliant choice and, and lends a lot of weight to the narrator's commentary. 
people will probably know Antigone has her own play as well. So it, it really presages the third of the three right. plays. Yes. Um, so it gives her a lot. It sets up her character really well for for what comes later. So you can either imagine the narrator as Antigone or or just as a as a general narrator. But I really like thinking of her as Antigone. Right. Well, the narrator in the classic original version, as written by, not sure we've even mentioned the librettist yet, Jean Cocteau, famous French writer, it's not Antigone. It's just a narrator helping us guide us through this Latin that we're not meant to fully understand, but just appreciate the music that's going on with the Latin. But one of the things we've talked about before on Opera for Everyone, the words, you can't change the words when there's music married to the words. But when there are words without music, they can be changed. You don't want to change the meaning or the the action of the play, but some of the specifics of the words, if they don't really change what's going on in the play, that definitely happens quite a lot in operatic type presentations. But back to... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, back to our story. We have another character come in, Creon, who is Oedipus's brother-in-law. He has been sent to the Oracle at Delphi to ask for the Oracle and Apollo, who is the god of, of Delphi, just to ask, what is going on? What do we do? Why are we cursed? Because it's important to understand that sickness is very symbolic in this time period and in drama. If there is a plague, it isn't just because of germs. Right. <laughs> you know, it is. There is something wrong. There is something rotten in the state of Denmark, as Shakespeare will later put it. <laughs> um, we're going to just throw all the references at you. Um, but, but it's true. You know, something is out of joint. Something is wrong. That's why the plague is there. It's not just a plague because a plague happens. And so because something is wrong, it means that we can do something to fix it. And so when the chorus is asking him to fix it, they mean fix it. And they mean you can actually do it because that's how the world works for them. Right. You, but first you have to find out what right. is wrong. So they've been asking Apollo to give them an idea of what they can do to fix this. And Creon is about to return to the city and he has a message from the gods. The gods are going to tell everyone that the problem is that the previous king who was murdered, that that murderer is still in Thebes and has not been punished. And that act is a stain on the city and has been festering for the time that Oedipus has been king. And one other thing I've mentioned actually in in previous, if you've listened to previous Opera for Everyone's, one of the things I find really interesting about Greek drama is that killing a king, even if that king is a bad king, it upsets the balance oh, yes. totally. Oh, yes. It is better to have a bad king in power than mm. to kill a king. To kill a king is, it's sacrilege, really. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, to have a king that has been murdered and that death has not been punished means that there is this sort of gaping hole in the in the world. And that has come back to, to bite them in the form of a hideous plague. Right. And they all take that as that's enough. That is that is crime enough. And we will learn the crime is far worse than simply killing a king. But that is crime enough. Uh, 
powerful and serious voice belongs to Creon, brother of the wife of King Oedipus. And I suppose he's also Oedipus. Well, never mind. Never mind. He, uh, <laughs> he, no spoilers in opera, Pat. No spoilers in opera. Well, he says what we said. The murderer hides here in Thebes. After Creon comes and delivers this message, Oedipus immediately promises that he will discover the murderer. Oedipus will cast the murderer out of Thebes, and that promise also may come back to haunt him. The chorus is is feeling like maybe this is all going to work out, and then we see Tiresias make his way in. Tiresias is an interesting character because he shows up again and again and again in Greek plays, Greek mythology. He does. He is an interesting figure. So he's a soothsayer and he, or a, sort of a prophet, and he has been sent for as, I guess, sort of a backup to the, the Delphi visit. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the oracles are famous for being foggy, unclear. Gnomic, as we might say. <laughs> Open to interpretation. Exactly. They are. It's <laughs> Yes. And, and of course, the problem with the Delphic oracles is that you tend to interpret it badly and and bring about your own downfall is is the the way that that usually goes. Um, so Tiresias is more of uh, the personal prophet or soothsayer, palm reader of the court, and he does he appears in a lot of other works, but he is a very old man at this point. He's sort of not he's not immortal, but he is very very old like more than a human could be Mm. and he has the interesting distinction of having lived a certain portion of his life as a woman he i didn't know that yes he gets transformed into a woman at one point and lives um i think it's seven years as a woman and and then gets transformed back that's a whole other story that Um, gives him certain insights doesn't it it does he's he's i like as i said he's an interesting figure but 
The problem with soothsayers is that people don't want to hear what they have to say because they often speak uncomfortable truths. And that is the case in this instance as well. (laughs) A fun little fact about Tiresias is that he appears in in Dante's Inferno, as many Greek Mm. characters do and characters from classic mythology do. Um, And he is in, I can't remember which circle, but he's in a circle of hell and um, all the soothsayers have their heads face backwards because that is their punishment because oh. they always looked back instead of forward that's the punishment that dante devises for for the soothsayers and in this instance his words are no less welcome but he knows that they're not because the first yes. thing we hear from him is don't make me speak yes, you don't want to he hear won't. what i have to say don't make me speak yes and oedipus says there's only one reason that you could be refusing to speak perhaps you are the murderer yourself or perhaps there's another reason. <laughs> <laughs> Tiresias does not like being accused of murdering a king. Nope. So he says, all right, fine. I'll, I'll tell you what I have to say. <laughs> you and won't want to hear it. On your own head be it. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you what I know. The murderer of Laius, the old king, is a king himself. Dum, dum, dum. And then Oedipus, I guess the good question about Oedipus, always the question about Oedipus. Mm-hmm is when does Oedipus, when does the penny drop for Oedipus? And why doesn't it drop earlier? A lot of people have this question about his story. Fair enough. It's a good question. Oedipus, as you will learn later, but I'll just tell you now, before he became king, when he came into Thebes, he murdered somebody. (laughs) On his way into Thebes, he had left his hometown of Corinth for reasons which will be explained shortly. And on his way into town... He ran into someone on the crossroads. Yeah, he gets into a fight with an old man at the crossroads and he kills him. And it's accidental. I mean, they're in a fight. He does. I don't think he means to kill him, but it's a killing nonetheless. We don't know. We weren't there. <laughs> it's a killing nonetheless. But he does not put together the fact that there has been a murder of an old man at around the same time as he maybe murdered an old man. But once again... Penny has not dropped, but he starts to get a little bit freaked out here because, well, he's a king and he has murdered somebody. So maybe those two are connected, (laughs) but he can't accept it psychologically to go back to Freud. So he (laughs) accuses Tiresias of being a traitor, says you must be in league with Creon who wants the throne. Mm. And we don't really know if Creon does want the throne. This could be in Oedipus's head. But he decides there's a grand conspiracy, and he's starting to really fall apart here. Mm -hmm. And then Jocasta comes in. Yes. And you remember I mentioned earlier that in the original conception of the play, there is no movement of these main characters. The people who can walk around are only Tiresias and two other characters we haven't seen yet, the shepherd and the messenger. The others are all on their, their plinths or their boxes, and it's just lighting that changes. The light is always on... The king is always on Oedipus, but right now, in a in a staging, a modern staging like what we have seen recently, Jocasta enters. But in Stravinsky's original conception, the light simply comes on, and we see Jocasta, and the chorus is delighted because they love their queen.
This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Oedipus Rex by Igor Stravinsky, the Opera Oratorio. Well, the very dignified and queenly Jocasta, and she's been a queen for quite a long time, much longer than Oedipus has been king, she has entered the scene because she has been attracted by all this commotion, all this concern, and the narrator is going to fill us in on what's going on. We're not playing a lot of the narration for you, partially because it is in French. Almost um. exclusively because it's in French, <laughs> because it's it's usually great speaking. But this next bit of oration, maybe we could we could do a little dramatic reading because there is drama here. Indeed. And the narrator does lay out exactly what you're about to see. So it's very incantatory. It's like the narrator says this is what is about to happen, and then it gets sung, and then we get the narrator, and then it gets sung. So before Jocasta comes in, the narrator lays out everything we're about to learn from her. And he says, three roads, crossroads, mark well those words. They horrify Oedipus. He remembers how, arriving from Corinth before encountering the Sphinx, he killed an old man where the roads meet. If Laius of Thebes were that old man, what then? The penny finally drops. <laughs> Oedipus cannot return to Corinth, having been threatened by the oracle with a double crime. Corinth, remember, is his hometown where he was raised by his, see my air quotes, mother and father. Killing his father and marrying his mother. Ah, uh, that's what the oracle said would happen. So mm-hmm. he can't go back to Corinth. He is afraid. So, and maybe this is important. We haven't actually said this before. Once again, assuming always everybody knows the story, but that is the oracle's curse, the prophecy yeah. about Oedipus when he was born, is that he would kill his father and marry his mother. And that, of course, is what the Oedipus complex is. And because the parents were rightly a bit freaked out by that prophecy, the child Oedipus was abandoned on a hillside and his ankles were pierced so that he couldn't walk. And this is horrifying to our modern sensibilities, but it was not actually that uncommon a practice in real life in Greece at this time period. If you couldn't care for a child or you thought there was something wrong with the child, this is how you would take care of not having to raise that child. And this is what they did to Oedipus, so they assumed that Oedipus did not survive. But... As we will learn, Oedipus very much did survive. Yes, or as we already know. Well, Jocasta's on the scene, and she takes them to task a little bit for all of this commotion. After all, the people are suffering. There's a plague. Why are you all bickering and complaining and posturing? Uh, What's all this nonsense about oracles? You know oracles are not true. They always lie, and she has a lengthy song talking about the fact that oracles only lie. And she has proof because after all, there was an oracle who said her own infant son was going to murder his father. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen. Clearly not. Her husband was murdered by a total stranger. Yeah, at a crossroads. Oh, wait. (laughs) Oh, wait. And this is very, very interesting. As she keeps singing more desperately and insistently, oracles always lie. Oedipus, my skin is crawling as I'm saying this, Oedipus says, Jocasta, I'm afraid. I'm greatly afraid. Yes, his fatal weakness is his hubris. Her fatal weakness in this is that she is not believing the gods. She can't. She can't. Right. Of course not, because what the gods are telling her is too horrible for her to believe. And 
Once again, simply to refer to this staging that I was so impressed with that we saw recently, at one point when he talks about being so afraid, he drops to his knees and he hugs her and she pats him on the head like a little boy. And that was almost sweet, stomach turning, all of those things you saw there. It was so poignant and so frightening at the same time as he says he's afraid and, and he, he becomes the size of a child next to this strong woman. So now the chorus is going to remind us about the crossroads. And in Latin, that's trivium. Trivium, trivium. And everybody's pretty worked up. And we're going to get them all at once. And and I think the orchestra's as worked up as the characters here. Yes, it's a, a really, really exciting duet plus chorus that just builds and builds and builds and builds as Oedipus starts to realize what he should have realized all along. Stop. 
here on Opera for Everyone. We're listening to Oedipus Rex, and Jocasta's still telling them that oracles always lie, but things are not on solid ground, and King Oedipus has lost his swagger. He's afraid. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he is starting to come apart. I don't think either of them, especially Jocasta, can fully admit the truth, but deep inside, I think they both know the truth. But just in case that isn't enough, we're going to get some external confirmation that what we fear, what they fear, is indeed true. Ah, we're going to examine the witnesses, huh? Exactly. So we're going to listen to a messenger who comes in, as well as a shepherd who is the shepherd that recovered Oedipus from the mountainside when he had been left out as a baby with his, his ankles pierced. The tender-hearted shepherd. Yes, and a few things to note here. One of the things people often say about Oedipus is, as I said, how could the penny not drop earlier? Um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that he should have known is he's got scars on his ankles that look like... Well, isn't his name reminiscent of his wounded feet? Yes, his name means swollen feet. Right. So he he has scars and there's a lot of things about this that he has clearly repressed. It's one of the reasons why Freud was so excited to use the Oedipus myth Mm. is that it's really all about repressed evidence because the evidence is all there, but he has refused to put the pieces together until now. Yes, but there is this shepherd who knows that he rescued this helpless baby who was left to die. Mm-hmm. He was, as you said, tenderhearted, couldn't couldn't allow the child to die exposed in the wilderness and raised him. And then he gave the child Oedipus to the person that Oedipus thought was his own father. And that just happened to be the king of Corinth and his wife. So he had royal lineage. So he had reason to be welcomed into the royal house of Thebes. Yes. And as we are about to hear, all of Oedipus's mental walls are about to, to fall down as he discovers that he indeed did kill his father and marry his mother. Well, what about this messenger? What's his, what's his message? Yeah. So the messenger is from Corinth, from the, the family, the, the royal family saying that the king has died. Oh, and Oedipus goes, oh, phew, I didn't kill my father. <laughs> right, see, look, my father just died like five seconds ago, right? It's all fine. And, and Jocasta gets the confirmation she's looking for. Right, exactly. <laughs> the but, oracles always lie. <laughs> but the problem with it is that, you Yikes. know, on his deathbed, he confessed, that the king of Corinth confessed that Oedipus was not his real son. Right, so and the messenger knows this too. We're getting two different people with two related but completely separate stories that are both confirming yeah. the fears that everyone's had. Yeah. So it's really impossible to run away from the truth anymore. So we're going to listen to the shepherd and the messenger who both really regret that they have to tell this story. And here we have everyone, the chorus, the people of Thebes, putting together the pieces along with the messenger and the shepherd, and you get this powerful piece where they're going to say, he is the son of Laos and Jocasta, Laos being the murdered king. He is the husband of his mother, Jocasta. And the power of this revelation, well, you're going to feel it in the music mm-hmm. and the voices. Indeed. I mean, there's 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 few taboos in our culture or in Greek culture, any culture, so, so terrible as incest. And to and patricide and patricide, true. It's it's the double crime, and so it's not just Oedipus has done something wrong. He's done the worst things that you, as a human being, can do. And how in the world would anyone bear learning that truth? Yeah. And by the way, 
as this revelation and even before the articulation of this revelation is happening, Jocasta is absenting herself from the scene. And we will not hear from her again in this opera oratorio. This is Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex, and it's dramatic, it's heartbreaking, it's all unraveling for King Oedipus. Jocasta has left the scene, and the narrator comes in right away to tell us that we're about to hear the famous monologue, the divine Jocasta is dead. And we do want to note here, just as a small content warning, we will discuss briefly Jocasta's suicide. So if that's something you are uncomfortable with, you can uh, skip ahead a little bit. And rejoin us in about two and a half minutes when the music starts, or for those who understand the song Latin, in about five and a half minutes after the song. But back to the narrator's terrible news. And the narrator will tell us He can scarcely open his mouth. The chorus takes his part and helps him to tell how the queen has hanged herself and how Oedipus has pierced his eyeballs with her golden pin. And then there's an epilogue. Well, that's grim and gruesome. (laughs) Yep. These Greek tragedies are, that is what they are. They are grim and gruesome. Yeah. Yeah. So we get two very different reactions to the news of Oedipus's birth and incest and patricide. And the first we get is Jocasta's reaction. As yeah. you noted, she has left the scene or her her light has gone dark. And one of the important things about Greek tragedy is that murder, death, destruction, horrible gore does not happen on stage. Right. In some stagings, modern stagings, they have changed this. But in the original staging, none of this would happen on stage. It would happen off stage. Sometimes you'd see shadows. It was never about the violence. It was about knowing about the violence. So Jocasta has left. She's gone to her chamber. She bars the door and she hangs herself. She can't live knowing that that this is the world that she lives in, that this is her family. And her part in all of this, after right. all, she's born children with her own son. She has. I mean, none of it is her fault, unless you want to lay the charge at her door of abandoning her child in the wilderness. But that is really 
more her husband's doing, I think, too. I mean, she's in a sense, she's she's innocent in terms of what she's knowingly done, but that's it's enough to have unknowingly done what she's done. So she she is has died. And although Oedipus has tried to break down the door, he has found her and she she is dead. Right. And the chorus will describe if you if you can speak the Latin or if you have a translation in front of you, we'll describe it in some gory detail. Otherwise, you can just listen to the power of the music. And it is powerful. It is indeed. So we are going to listen to the messenger and the chorus come in and and say this news that, that Jocasta has died. feels like the story is over but there's but there's more grief to come in this epilogue to the story of Oedipus the king 
And everyone, there is more opera for everyone to come in the second half when we deal with another Stravinsky presentation, the story of Persephone. But tell us about this this epilogue, this final bit of action in the story of Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex. Right. So I, I said there's two very different reactions to the revelation of the truth about Oedipus. Jocasta kills herself, but Oedipus does not. He stays alive, but he blinds himself. This is obviously highly symbolic. He has been blind and he realizes that he has been blind to his birth, to facts he should have known, to the identity of the man that he murdered. These are things he should have considered, should have seen. And because he didn't see them, he blinds himself as a sort of just punishment to himself. But he lives on. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about the play is that Oedipus does not kill himself. He lives on. And the chorus gives this epilogue that he has shown himself to be, they say, the foulest of monsters. The chorus is is largely the people of the city. We've referred to them that way, and they they are really written that way. And so they see their king as the foulest of monsters, this loathsome beast. He's now blinded. He's deformed. But at the end, they say, farewell. You can't stay here in the city anymore. You're cast out, but we miss you in a way. We loved you. We pitied you. We do pity you, your unfortunate Oedipus. So there's a a way in which Stravinsky finds a way to close on a moment of grace, of forgiveness. Mm. And Oedipus will go and wander and have a very difficult life after this. But he doesn't go alone. Well, they don't tell us in this story, but we know from the other two stories which follow in the trilogy. Yes. He will suffer. He will wander. He will be cast out of everywhere he goes. And he will wander with his two daughters, Antigone and Ismene, who are, merely appear at the end to lead their father out, but have their own stories in the next two plays, which are not a part of this cycle. But there, there's a moment of grace and I think foreshadowing that there could be forgiveness for a character like this. And that brings us back to the Christianizing aspect of Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex. Mm. I, I don't feel totally qualified to speak on whether... There's grace and forgiveness in the original Sophocles. I don't see it there as starkly as I do in Stravinsky's version, but I think I definitely see it in Stravinsky's version that he opens the path for grace and for forgiveness, which is which is a very Christian ideal. So Oedipus is going to wander in the desert, sort of akin to a yeah. 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> <laughs> but there could be forgiveness waiting at the end. And that is is how we close Oedipus Rex. Well, please enjoy some of the last music of Oedipus Rex. And we'll be back for the second half to tell you a little bit about the CD that we've been listening to, as always, a special kind of opera helmet quiz. And please enjoy.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Kathleen Vanderwill. Kathleen, I am so glad you're here once again to help us with classics. I'm always happy to have a chance to talk about some classics, some mythology, and two really, really great stories. Yes, Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex, and coming up soon, Persephone, not classic operas in presentation, but some beautiful music and some very intriguing storytelling. Yes, there's a lot that connects these two stories thematically, I would say. Obviously, Stravinsky didn't necessarily write them to be in concert with each other, but we've placed them in concert with each other. And I think there's a lot of parallels with the different themes and obviously the source material and the timing. Yes. And before we carry on talking about these or or even have our, our unusual opera helmet quiz time, We'd like to take a moment to recognize and thank the people involved in the production of the music that we're listening to on these CDs today. Yes. So the Oedipus Rex that you all just listened to is recorded in Okaya, Japan in 1992. The conductor is Seiji Ozawa. The main roles, Oedipus was played by Peter Schreier, Jocasta by Jesse Norman, Creon is Bryn Terfel, Tiresias Harry Peters, the shepherd Robert Svensson, the messenger Michio Tatara, and the narrator was George Wilson. And that wonderful, wonderful male choir was the Shinyukai Male Choir with the Saito Kinnan Orchestra. And the CD recording of Igor Stravinsky's Persephone, Persephone, was made in 2018 by the Finnish National Opera, along with the Opera Orchestra, Chorus, and Children's Chorus of the Finnish National Opera under the direction of Esapekka Salonen. We have one soloist, the tenor Andrew Staples, in the role of Eumophilus, and there is a speaking role, and that is Persephone herself, and that is Pauline Chevalier. Thank you one and all for this beautiful music and this beautiful storytelling. Well, not a traditional opera helmet quiz, but let's just take a moment to think a little bit about the Oedipus Rex story that we've heard presented in this opera oratorio from the first half, and then we'll move on to Persephone in the second half. Both of these are sort of concert operas, opera oratorios. So Kathleen, Oedipus Rex. Oedipus, that's a familiar name, even if you've never read the Sophocles play. 
not really fair for the Stravinsky story, but I know that a lot of people have heard the phrase Oedipus complex. With the understanding of what we've just experienced, could you just highlight for everyone what that is and and maybe why that was such an intriguing topic for Stravinsky or why does it why do people even in the modern world right now why do they know that name and why does it come up well without getting too much in the weeds the oedipus complex is one of freud's most famous theories sigmund freud he's the, i guess you could say the founder of psychoanalysis mm-hmm. So his theory was that our unconscious self, I'm, once again, I'm, I'm going to be kind of using terms that are probably familiar you, you to everybody. You thumbnail version, that's okay. Yeah. So I'm not going to go ahead go too deep into, you know, what the unconscious is or what the id and the ego are, et cetera. But Freud's idea is that within our unconscious, there is a buried desire in all young men. <laughs> to kill their father and marry their mother. Well, that's dark. Which is, it is very dark. And this, this is, he takes the Oedipus story and names names this after Oedipus. There's also a version of this for the women called the Elector Complex, which is from a story by Aeschylus. You know, Strauss wrote a very famous opera based on Electra. Yes. <laughs> One of these days. So the, the psychoanalysts of the early to mid 20th century took a lot of their terminology and their metaphors from classical literature. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously the most famous example of that, which is why a lot of people know the term Oedipus. They know Oedipus complex, even if they've never read the Sophocles plays. There is a a bit of a question about how much Freud saw this as metaphorical and how much he saw this as literal. Like, I don't think he was ever really saying that men literally want to kill their fathers and marry their mothers. But the idea is it's, it's a metaphorical construction to try and understand a young boy's desire to protect his mother and to also ultimately find a a female partner of his own who kind of fills that mother role. This is getting kind of in the weeds, but, but in order to do that, you have to kill the father influence. So you have to kind of grow up. Uh, It's not, it's not easy growing up. It's just not easy. (laughs) Freud, Freud, of course, because he was a very dramatic person, expressed it in a very dramatic way. Mm-hmm. Drama. Well, this is what we're here for. We're here for the drama. <laughs> exactly. But which fits very well with opera. But yeah, you can kind of just see it as it's it's largely metaphorical and has has very much fallen out of favor, I would say. I don't think yes. that you can still get yourself psychoanalyzed, but most people don't take Freud's theories as literally as as perhaps that he was taken when he first presented them. But yes, that is that is one of the reasons why Oedipus has endured as a name. Interesting. Well, I'm also going to remind you that you promised to answer the riddle of the Sphinx. <laughs> I did. Well, I hope that nobody nobody Googled it. <laughs> they all <laughs> promised yes, so, that they wouldn't. <laughs> they promised so solemnly that they wouldn't. So to remind everyone about what the riddle of the Sphinx was, it's it what being or what walks on two four legs, then two, and then three, or what has four legs in the morning, two at noon, and three in the evening, depending on on which account you're Speaking reading. Speaking of metaphors. Right. Very metaphorical. So the answer, of course, is man, mankind. So the answer is man crawls on all fours as a baby, walks on two legs as an adult, and then has need of a cane in old age. That's the third leg. Some may 
say this sounds a little familiar as Shakespeare took this um, in his All the World's a Stage speech, also known as the Seven Ages of Man speech, and expanded it a little bit, but really riffs off the Sphinx riddle to talk about how man changes throughout his life. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Well, maybe I didn't completely forgot about it. Shakespeare, Shakespeare knew his Sophocles too. <laughs> yeah, we do. We need to know the artists who come before us in our given field, at least. Absolutely. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. Well, up next we have Persephone. And Persephone is one of those myths that I've always seen as a myth that helps us understand the world as it is. It's a myth about relationships, but it's also more than that, or primarily a myth about understanding the natural world, is how I've always understood the myth of Persephone, because she's the daughter of Demeter, or Ceres, as in cereal, as in grain. Yeah, so a lot of the Greek myths are structured this way in order to help us understand why certain things are the way they are in the world. So how did human beings get fire? Why does this flower exist? <laughs> why does it grow in this place? Mm -hmm. And yeah, the Persephone myth is, is that on a really grand scale. The ultimate question that the Persephone myth is answering is why does winter exist? And why is, why is the earth not always fruitful? Why is the summer not always there? Why are there seasons? <laughs> Why are there seasons exactly? <laughs> Which is a pretty fundamental question to answer. And um, yes, <laughs> will it ever be spring again is the question always in the depth of winter. And this myth is created to answer that question. And as this story opens on stage, it's not winter. It's a real celebration of things growing and flowers and springtime and the beauty of nature. Yes, on stage we have Persephone and she is gathering flowers with other maidens. So she is in a in a very idyllic happy place. Right. And this is one of those presentations that Stravinsky wrote to be dance music. In fact, there's own besides the chorus, a children's chorus and an adult chorus, besides that chorus there's only one singer, a tenor, who's really, he's a character, yes, but he's really a narrator. And the Persephone role is a spoken role, which is fascinating. It is really fascinating. This is something that connects the two stories that we have dived into today, Oedipus, Rex, and Persephone, that the central character, who I would argue is, is really the narrator character in Oedipus Rex, even though it's called Oedipus Rex, the, the narrator really, you know, is the one that we follow through the story. And then Persephone herself in Persephone are both spoken roles, which is really interesting to me that they are not allowed to sing. <laughs> and I'm not sure why. And I'm not really sure what Stravinsky was trying to say there, that there's something about the difference between singing the story and, and telling it straight. Let's get a little bit of the flavor of this story, and then we'll, we'll come back and, and tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the history of it.
triste, inquiet. You're listening to Stravinsky's Persephone, Persephone. We've just celebrated the joys of spring with dancers, perhaps, but definitely a chorus and our narrator, Eumophilus, and Persephone is being told to enjoy all the beautiful flowers. And the chorus tells her the Narcissus is the most beautiful of all the flowers. And this narrator, Eumophilus, interestingly says, oh, and if you breathe in the scent of that Narcissus, the mysteries of Hades will be revealed. Well, Hades, that's the underworld. Yes, it's a bit of a dark, strange note to introduce into our lovely flower song scene. <laughs> it's a little scary because that's not a that's not a happy place to go. That's not where you frolic and enjoy the sunshine. No, no sunshine in the underworld. <laughs> no, not at all. And right away, the chorus tells her to be on her guard, tells her to beware. Yes. And I think it's it's worth talking a little bit about who our characters on stage are here, because those of you who are familiar with the Persephone myth may be asking yourself who Eumolpus is. He is a bit of an odd figure to have here. He's not traditionally in a telling of this myth. Mm. And it took, it took a little bit of research on my part, I will admit, to find out why Andre Gide had included him in the original story that Stravinsky is adapting here and in the libretto. We should mention that André Gide is our librettist. Yes. A well-known French writer. Yes, indeed. And he has done some really interesting and different things with the Persephone myth, which we'll talk about as we go along. And one of them is including Eumolpus as a narrator figure who is both narrating the story to us, the viewers, but also interacting with the characters, especially Persephone and guiding their actions, really influencing what she does. I see him as kind of a trickster figure, <laughs> and we'll talk about that as we go along, because this is a really good instance of this, what we're just talking about. Nobody's talking about this flower that lets you see the underworld until he brings it up and is like, ooh, by the way, you don't want to touch that one. Wink, wink, nudge, right. nudge. <laughs> but I did some research about why Gide might have included him. Oh. And Eumolpus is a direct connection to something called the Eleusinian Mysteries, which were religious rites associated with the cult of Demeter and Persephone in ancient Greece. We probably mostly know Persephone's story from something like Edith Hamilton's mythology or a Disney movie like Hercules, mm. where it gets mentioned. But it was really a religious rite. And a lot of what we see as just stories these days were very closely associated with Greek religion. And there was a whole cult called the Eleusinian Mysteries. It's called Mysteries because we really genuinely don't know to this day, nor did anyone who wasn't a part of it know what the actual rites were. We know bits and pieces, but mm. Eumolpus was the first, he's really the founder of the Eleusinian Mysteries. He was a king of Thrace. Oh. He is a half mythological, half potentially real figure. We're not really sure, but he's credited with starting the very, very real Eleusinian Mysteries and as the first high priest of the cult of Demeter and Persephone. So he makes a lot of sense when you think about it from that perspective. Oh, so he would have insight into mm -hmm. the actions of these characters, yes. Demeter and her daughter, Persephone. Exactly. And 
much of this story is less based on mythological accounts like the Homeric hymn to Demeter and more based on the Eleusinian mysteries themselves, which are a little bit darker and a little bit more religiously inflected, definitely. It's it's a dark, interesting story, and there's a lot of cultic aspects to it, a lot of rituals, a lot of reenacting. Intriguing. They would have actual figures reenact and play the roles of these characters. Right. Anyway, we will talk about that a little bit more later. And, and as I said, there's not a lot known about the actual rituals, but that is why Eumolpus is here. And he is encouraging Persephone by some reverse psychology, I think, <laughs> to start picturing the underworld by saying, this flower allows you to see into Hades, which is probably something that this beautiful maiden goddess had never considered before. But now we start to see that it consumes her. I confess, Kathleen, I'm reading ahead a bit, and he's encouraging her to go and help the poor and mournful people of Hades. Which is an extreme departure from all versions of this myth. The main action in every version of the story I've ever read is that Hades, the god of the underworld, sees Persephone gathering flowers and is entranced by her beauty and her youth and the sunshine that she is basking in and that she really represents. He decides he wants to take her as his wife. And there's no beating around the bush. This is often called the rape of Persephone. And it is, in fact, called the rape of Persephone in this as well. Which oftentimes gets translated as abduction. Right, to soften it a little mm -hmm. bit. But it is what it is. You know, he's, he's taking her to become his wife without her consent. Yeah. But that is almost completely absent from this retelling of the story. Instead, there's a very Christianized version. She is cast as almost a Christ figure descending into the underworld to help the poor unfortunate souls that are hungering for sunshine and and laughter and happiness. Right. And she feels that she can give that to them because Eumolpus encourages her to think that she should. Right. Because right here, Eumolpus is saying to her, after he's told her about the poor and mournful people of Hades, he says, well, Persephone, your people await already your pity has betrothed you to Pluto, Hades' king. Because you have mm. pitied these people, you must become his queen. And so you shall descend into the underworld and right. console these poor pitiful souls. It, it really gives, it at the same time, gives back agency to Persephone because she chooses to do this and also takes it away from her because it, it's a trick on his part. Because as we will read ahead a little bit further to see, this is not at all the case that when she's going to descend to help these poor unfortunate souls, she is not going to find that it is what she expected or that she's the Christ figure she seems to be casting herself as. Yes, and already here in this first of three scenes, he says, your spring, their perpetual winter will dispel and you will be their queen. And Persephone accepts the assignment.
listening to Opera for Everyone, and in this second half, we're focusing on Persephone by Igor Stravinsky. And before we jump into the second of our three parts, let's just take a minute, Kathleen, and talk about how this opera came to be. And I'll just mention now that it premiered in Paris in 1934. And unlike a lot of the premieres that Stravinsky had in Paris, it did not premiere with the Ballet Russe of Diaghilev. But it was one of Diaghilev's former dancers who was instrumental in the creation of this work of art. Ida Rubinstein, what a woman. Yeah, one of the grand characters of the 20th century, I would say. Yeah, if, um, if you're near a computer, I recommend look her up. She is a character. The pictures are fantastic, fabulous. She's one of the people, for instance, who in the early years danced in the Oscar Wilde play, Zolomé, one of the inspirations for the later Richard Strauss opera Zolomé. She danced the Dance of the Seven Veils. She's a great ballet dancer. She is, I would say, undoubtedly the reason that Persephone is not a, an operatic singing role in this performance. She's typically a dance role along with a speaking role. And in the premiere that she did both of those things. She spoke the role and she danced it. And we have the tenor and the rest is choral. I think you can probably tell us a little bit more about how she helped Stravinsky bring this to life. Yeah, so I mean, as you said, she was in the Ballet Russe from 1909 to 1911, but then she later formed her own ballet company. And when this premiered, it premiered with her ballet company. She also commissioned Ravel's Bolero. She's just a, a great art patron. Wow, that is, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, she's one of those people where she knew everybody. She mm-hmm. spoke five languages, including ancient Greek. <laughs> yes. um, and she became really interested in ancient Greek culture and literature, which is part of why she commissioned Persephone. Yes, very dramatic, very theatrical, and wanted to share her art with the world. Mm-hmm. And as you noted, she both danced and spoke the role of Persephone, but most of the time when it's performed these days, there are two actors on stage. There's a dancer version of Persephone who is silent, and there's an actor speaking Persephone's role. So they mirror each other. And we've seen a couple of productions that do some very interesting metaphorical imagery with the the two mirrored Persephones. So I I recommend that if you have the chance to, to watch a version of that, we saw a wonderful Peter Sellers-directed production together. Yes, yes. And, and I will note that I, I did find not too long ago on YouTube a New York City ballet performance from the 1980s where the dancer performed the Balanchine choreography and she also spoke the role. So she did both as well. The Balanchine production, I think, which he choreographed in the 50s, was the standard production, was the the go-to production of this show for quite a long time and much beloved. But, you know, these things can be reinterpreted in so many different ways. And I mean, that's one of the beauty of these stories. It's true. Well, we have left Persephone teetering on the precipice between earth and hell. Well, down, down, <laughs> so, down she goes. Indeed. She is about to wake up and she looks about her and she is in the underworld, which is often conflated with a more Christianized vision of an underworld, a a hell. 
But for the Greeks, that wasn't really the case. It wasn't a hell. It wasn't about suffering necessarily. It was actually a much more nihilistic place where it's just like a, it's just where you go. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. So she wakes up and she looks around her and this is not like anything she recognizes. It is not her flower strewn valley. And she starts to ask a series of questions of the shades around her. And she asks them, how can I make you happy? Because as we said, that's what she has descended to the underworld to do. And they are going to respond to her. Basically, there is no such thing as happy or unhappy. The shades are not unhappy, they say, without hatred or love, without sorrow or desire. They are forever destined to recommence their lives' unfinished circle. Right, right. Well, I mean, even when she first comes to, she's confused. Can it be night already? Will it be dawn soon? There's not a sense of... Not, I mean, not only are there no seasons, there's no day, there's no night. She's confused, and she doesn't. This is she doesn't have her bearings about her. Yeah, I mean, she thought she was gonna descend to the underworld and break open the gates of hell and bring sunshine and springtime to everybody, and instead, it's just dark and cold, and she's alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we. It's not the first time on Opera for Everyone, that we've encountered characters visiting the underworld. We've done it with the Orpheus and Eurydice story, and it's a, it's, it's an image that comes up in a number of Greek myths, that, that characters will go to the underworld. It's, it's unusual, but, but it's a powerful, powerful story. It's true. Actually, one of my favorite Greek myths involves a trip to the underworld and Persephone. And that's the story of Psyche and Cupid. Mm. Psyche is a human woman. She gets in all sorts of trouble. She's too beautiful and Aphrodite gets really jealous. But she has to do all these tasks. And one of them is she has to go into the underworld and she has to bring a box of beauty from Persephone. And when she opens the box, because we've got our little resonances of Pandora there, she can't she can't take it all the way. She's too curious. She opens the box and instead of beauty, there is only death. Ooh. So if you're looking for more Greek myths, that's one I recommend. <laughs> but that's a little bit of a tangent. That, yeah. Well, mm, that's not in this story. No. <laughs> well, let's get a little feel for how the chorus evokes this mood in the underworld. Dans quelle je m'éveille? Où suis-je? Est-ce déjà le soir?
here we are in the underworld with the shades meeting their new queen, Queen Persephone. And even though they say, no, we can't be happy. There's no day, there's no night, all that. That doesn't exist here. They do say, well, Persephone, would you tell us of springtime? And she does. She talks them through it a little bit. And they say, well, speak to us, Persephone. And, and she speaks, but, but then another character does appear. Her husband, Pluto, appears. Pluto doesn't speak or sing, by the way, but he appears. No. <laughs> he just dances. And I'm sure many productions decide what they want to do with the character of Pluto or Hades. But the production that we saw, which really stuck in my mind, casts him all in red. He's very much a devil figure, mm -hmm. I would say. Which, again, is, is a very uh, Christian vision of ancient Greek mythology and religion. But he does play the, the role of the villain in this story, for sure. And he gets equated often with the, the Christianized version of Satan. He is not a singing or speaking role. He's just dancing here. But he very much wants to possess her, wants her to be his queen, wants to rule over the underworld with her. In some versions of the story, he's represented as lonely. Not that that's an excuse for stealing a bride, but um, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's an idea that there is some maybe a yearning in Persephone for the darkness that he represents and that there is bad maybe some <laughs> yeah he's, he's right he's he's the bad boy exactly Aww. Hades town all over again <laughs> oh no well interestingly Eumolphus our narrator will come in I find this very curious he says to Persephone you come to rule and not to pity where we've just had that other scene where he says your pity has wed you to the god of the underworld and he says, you can't escape it. You are here to rule. And so forget your thoughts of pity and drink this cup from the river Leith, which is that, that river of forgetfulness down in the underworld. And you will not have to worry about that anymore. And you will belong to the underworld forever. And Persephone, she has some objections. She has some sense. I'll give her that. Not a lot of sense in sniffing the flower they told you not to sniff, but she refuses to drink the cup of forgetful water, which is good. <laughs> and she refuses all other things that they try to offer her. One of the, the cardinal rules of mythology and magic and fantasy worlds throughout history is that if somebody offers you food mm. in a place like the underworld, do not accept yes. it. And this goes very much back to the, the Greek idea that if you eat at someone's table, you accept their hospitality, that creates a bond between you. And that is is the idea of the underworld. If you eat anything of the underworld or you drink anything of the underworld, then the underworld was gonna have a hold on you. But, 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 <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she ultimately is seduced by one last thing that they offer her. This is the famous pomegranate. If anybody knows Persephone, you probably know that she's she's the girl who ate the pomegranate seeds. She eats four pomegranate seeds because they're so beautiful and she's so miserable. They are beautiful. They look like little jewels. It's true. But she eats four of them and that will be important later on. Yes, she seizes the ripe fruit and she bites it. And Mercury has come in, that messenger god. He and uh, Pluto exchange meaningful glances, and Pluto seems pretty happy. Yes, so 
I, once again, Persephone's been tricked. She's been tricked several times now. And I think this is this is sort of the big trick, is that he gets her to eat something, which is going to affect her ability to leave the underworld. And Mercury is really, he's the messenger figure. He's Hermes in, in Greek mythology. And he's there to witness that she's done this and also to convey information back and forth between the world above and the world below. This is not in the, the opera itself, but in the larger myth, Zeus, the king of the gods, is aware that this has happened because Mercury communicates this to him. Mm-hmm. And Demeter, who is Zeus's sister, is going to come and appeal and say, I'm sorry, I'm really not okay with the fact that your brother just kidnapped my daughter. <laughs> so Mercury's acting as a messenger figure and a witness figure throughout, but is also a silent role. And now that she's really become part of the underworld, fully and thoroughly having eaten these pomegranate seeds, winter winter descends and the chorus knows it they sing it où donc avez-vous fui parfum chanson escorte de l'amour je ne vois rien que des feuilles mortes now that persephone has eaten the pomegranate seeds she's eaten four of them in the traditional telling of the myth which is going to accord to how many months of winter we have, which is around four. That's why there's four seeds. Depending on where you live. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But she has eaten the seeds and her mother has felt that she is in some way lost to her. And Demeter, as we noted earlier, is the goddess of the harvest, of grain, of abundance. She's often represented with the, the cornucopia that you often see in cartoons for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Um, That is, that's her symbol. So when she grieves the fact that she's lost her daughter, she is the one that causes the winter. She is so angry that she causes winter to cover the land and she refuses to lift that until her daughter is given back to her. And she appeals to the heavens, to Zeus, to anyone who will listen in her anger. And she wanders all over the earth. And this is where the Eleusinian mysteries come back in. One of the places that she wanders to is the town or city of Eleusis. She arrives at the palace door and the king, he not only welcomes her in and everywhere else she has not been welcomed in. This is, this is reminiscent of Oedipus, wandering the earth, no one will take him in. She wanders the earth until the king of Eleusis takes her in and, in fact, understanding who she is, gives his newborn son to her and says, you have lost a daughter. Here is my child. Take my child and nurse him as if he's your own. And she does. And this particular libretto uh, conflates these two characters, Demophon and Triptolemus. They are actually two sons of the actual story. They're actually two different characters, but puts them together as one, Triptolemus, in in this, probably just for concision's sake. (laughs) But she nurses Triptolemus at her breast, and her breast milk turns him into a full-grown man instantly. Oh, wow. She's a goddess. So then he becomes her companion and she teaches him, he's human, she teaches him as she wanders the earth. Companion as in grown-up son companion? Companion? Yeah, son. He grows up and becomes her son and her companion as she wanders the earth and is her adult son that she is teaching how to grow grain. There's an idea in the Eleusine Mysteries that before this story happens, there is no 
cultivation. There's no agriculture in Greece. It's just things grow oh, the, like and first everyone farmer. is nurtured. Right, oh. manna from heaven, kind of that idea. Uh-huh. But the invention of agriculture, the origin of that is this story, is Demeter teaching Triptolemus how to sow in the earth. Fascinating. Yeah, so you get a lot of origin stories here. Right. And this is all happening while Persephone is underground as the queen of the underworld. And not only is is Demeter raising Triptolemus to be this sort of human version of her, mm-hmm. but she is raising him to be an above ground version of Persephone's husband. So she sees this as if she raises a son to be the husband to Persephone, then mm-hmm. Persephone will leave Hades and instead marry this this sort of good light version of Hades. So you've got this this doubling going on where you've got Triplamus is the good light version and, and Hades is this dark twisted version of a husband. And you also have these two Persephones, the one who speaks and the one who dances. So you've got a lot of interesting themes going on at this point. This is fascinating because I've always focused on the mother's grief, not not this raising of the son and preparing of a husband for Persephone, ready to greet her when she does finally return to Earth. I think I just missed that beat, and that's good to know. Well, as I noted before, the reason I think you haven't focused on that is because it's really not a very well-known version of this story. That is the Eleusinian Mysteries. That is not what we normally think of when we think of the Persephone story. Um, Thanks for doing all that research. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) I'm an initiate into the mysteries now. I know. I feel like I should swear a secret oath here, but we're going to share it <laughs> we'll do that later. with the world here. <laughs> so meanwhile, back down in the underworld, Persephone seems to know a little bit about what's happening with her mother and this surrogate son that she is raising. She perceives somehow or another that she walks the beach raising this boy and wonders and believes that she's somehow going to get back up to Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not really clear whether it's the chorus that's telling her this or Mercury or just the fact that she's a goddess and she knows things. <laughs> yeah. But she seems to have a, an inkling that this is coming yes. almost the same way one might say that we know that spring is coming again. You know, we feel it. We can start to see the signs and, and she starts to see that there is going to be a rebirth for her. Mm-hmm and that there is an earthly husband up there waiting for her. Yes, and am I wrong in in recalling my learning of Greek mythology that there was usually some sort of negotiation that goes on where Demeter negotiates with Zeus or Hades? Yeah, well, I mean, she she says to Zeus, I will not bring spring back. Right. I will keep the earth an eternal winter unless you give me my daughter back. And then Zeus says to Hades, you have to give her back. Yeah. And Hades says, I can't because she ate the pomegranate. And so Zeus says, okay, she ate four seeds. She has to stay in the underworld for four months every year. And the rest of the time she can be up with her mother. So she becomes this figure who is both light and dark. And she represents the the seasons, as we said, you know, that there is the dark times when it is cold and that is when Persephone is gone, her face is turned from us, and then there's the spring where she comes back again. And so now we move into part three, and this is the final part of this presentation. 
And we'll hear a little bit from our narrator figure, Eumophilus, and he's going to let us know that the people are happy to receive Persephone back. They're not going to have her all the time, but they will have her back. And Triptolemus is going to be at her side with his gleaming sickle. That's the sickle you use to harvest the grain. And there will be a choir of nymphs, and they are a faithful couple together. And the chorus will rejoice with them, the children as well.
This is Opera for Everyone, and those choirs that we're listening to, children's and adult choirs, they are celebrating Persephone's return to the earth from the underworld. But it's interesting, as the choirs go on, it's it's a mixed celebration. It's this celebration which is a, a compromised situation, because it's not just a return, it's a return where they don't simply get to keep her up on the earth. She's going to have to go back to the underworld each year. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, we've talked a lot about how she's representative of the seasons and of the fact that it can't always be spring and summer, that there have to be other seasons in order to enact the cycle of life. But Persephone is also, she's a Bildungsroman, as, as we would say. I'm sorry, could you please explain that term? She's a, an origin story, a growing story. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's just, it just means like a, a story of growing up. It is also a story of a young woman going from virginity to married life. She goes from being a core, a maiden, to being a, a married woman in, you know, in the end to two different people. <laughs> yeah, twice married. But it is Persephone <laughs> as maiden at the beginning. She is then taken and married. She is no longer a virgin and has to come back to her old life at the end, it's very clear that she's changed. And they ask her, the chorus says, tell us what you saw in the underworld. Tell us mm. what that has done to you. What knowledge do you bring us from the land of the dead? Not that I'm necessarily equating marriage with the land of the dead, but <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. But the Greeks kind of did, I guess. I guess. It is. It's the death of the child within us and so the mm -hmm. birth of the grown woman. So that is that is also, I think, something that Stravinsky is highlighting here with this with this structure. And when she comes back, she's changed. She's not the child she was. But it ends with the reiteration of the fact that she has to go back, that that is the cycle of life. You must always go back to, to the land of, of darkness. But she will bring a little ray of, of light. She'll bring herself to those that are suffering there. Yeah, it, it's so interesting to, to experience the language here. It, it, it is poetry about this archangel of death rekindling your torch and your mother Demeter <laughs> is awaiting you and the flowers on the coffin. And, and these images are so strong and they're so powerful. And we have celebration mixed with all of these funereal images, but like you said, it's a, it's a story about growing up and it's a story about life because life is, is celebration. It is the embracing of the sun on your back, but it's also the embracing of the, of the sadness of life. It's, it's very powerful for that reason. It, seasons do come and go. Day does follow night, which follows day, which follows night. It's life and death do occur. It's, it's powerful in that way and very explanatory. And it's just, it's lovely. It is. And the last bit that the chorus sings is setting up Persephone returning back to the underworld, saying that although she's now in the light, she has to go back to the underworld for at least some part of the year and bring a little bit of, of light and sunshine and a, a memory of springtime to those that are suffering down there. Yeah. Ending with beneath the ground to reappear as a golden harvest in years to come. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, just like Kathleen, I know you will reappear on Opera for Everyone in the future. <laughs> and sadly, we, we must end this show. 
I am the Persephone <laughs> Papa for everyone. <laughs> I love it. We're going to end on some of this lovely choral music. And I know you will rejoin us again. Yes, I will for sure emerge from the underworld and, and do another opera recording with you. <laughs> Thank you. And you all join us as well. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host today, Pat Wright. Joined by Kathleen Vanduil. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe... Opera is for everyone.